How many of you watched the Olympics so far? Any of you watched the Sochi Olympics? Anybody care about that at all? It's amazing to watch those young adults uh, do the best they can to try to win some of those medals and to watch the competition. And um, I know Wednesday night I had a couple of them say, you know, we, you better get out on time because at 7 o'clock that's when the, uh, the ladies ice whatever, you know. They do their thing. I, I'm more of the, 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 the guys that flip and uh, the guys that like to f- fly, you know, that come off those things. I also like to watch the races. And Friday night I was uh, sitting on my couch still trying to recover from a little bit of what I had last week and the week before that. And I'm about 90%. Thank you for praying for me. But I was sitting down and I was watching some of the Olympics. And uh, it was interesting to watch the last one who ran the women's slalom uh, last Friday was none other than a young lady named Michaela Griffin, 18 years old. Uh, Interesting young lady. Had never been in an Olympic before. It was her first Olympics, although she has been pretty much a world champion for the last two years. This was her first Olympics. And I watched her stand at the gate ready to go down the slalom. If you know what that is, that's when they go down as fast as they can and they weave in through the, the poles that are up and they hit those things and It's amazing to me how they stand vertical after that. And uh, she is known to be very aggressive in her skiing, and she was not to be denied that day. She was, in fact, very aggressive, and as she was going down, uh, but I I noticed as she was standing there, she kind of closed her eyes for a second, and I thought, she is envisioning crossing the finish line. She's going in her mind how she's going to go down this slope and how she's going to cross the finish line. And you know that the first one who makes all the turns and crosses the finish line first is the one who's going to win. And I could see the determination on her mind to cross that finish line in a time better than anyone else and win the gold medal. And sure enough, she did. And she did win the gold medal. She is the youngest gold medal winner of all time, 18 years old in the women's slalom. And I, I just sort of thought about that for a minute as I was studying for this text. How many times do we not do what she has done? We don't focus our hearts and our minds, our objectives, our motives, our goals, our lives with the end in sight. We need to focus, we need to concentrate with the end in sight. We must always have in our vision, in our sight, the end of life. Because I'm convinced when we have the end of life in sight, in focus all the time, that enables us to to sort of run the race that God has called us to run with the effectiveness that he is calling us to run that race. And we see in John chapter 14, verses 1 through 7, a beautiful passage in which Jesus is trying to tell his disciples that they are to be heaven-bound. In other words, they are to have the end in sight all of the time, to live their lives with the end in sight. And so I want us to stand together. I'm going to read the passage. It's uh, on the, the far screen, if you will. Let's stand and let's read John chapter 14, beginning with verse 1 together. I'm just going to read it if you'd like to follow along, and then we'll get to our text and, and study what God has for us today. Jesus tells the disciples how to live with the end in sight. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I'm going. 
Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going, and how can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him through me. Father, I pray that as we stand this morning and we open this text, that you would open our hearts and open our minds to be receptive of this really incredible insight to live our lives always with the end in sight. Because that has a way of putting the perspective on the lives that we live with a much broader scope and a a more narrow focus. Because we have been made for eternity. We were created for eternity. We are in Christ given eternal life. And this place, this world, this life is not our final destination. And there are times in which we live our lives as if this is it. This is all there is. But it's not. And the world around us constantly bombards us with the temptation of making this life more permanent than it ought to be. But Lord, I pray that you would give us an eternal perspective this morning to recognize and realize that we in Christ are heaven bound and that this world is not our home. These possessions are not ours to be used for our glory, but for yours, and that you would take our lives and use it for your glory, Lord, and help us as we run the race that you have called us to run with the end in sight. Because someday, Lord, we're going to stand before you and give an account of our lives, the way that we lived and how we invested what you entrusted to us. And God, I pray that we'd be able to stand boldly and say that we have run a good race, we fought a good fight, and we finished our course. We ran with the end in sight. The choices and the decision we made, we made with the end in sight. So Lord, sharpen our focus, enable this perspective, and help us to live the best lives we can live for you. For your glory we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. Please be seated. If you take a look at John 14, you know anything about it, there are several things that have happened up till now. We have discovered in John chapter 13 that Jesus is in the upper room with his disciples and uh, he has washed their feet. We also know that he's identified the betrayer, which is Judas. And Judas has now left the scene. Jesus tells his disciples a new commandment in John Chapter 13, he says that they are to love each other as he loved them, and he admonishes and encourages them to love each other with, a, with an eternal, a divine, an everlasting, an unqualified type of love that knows no boundaries and no limits. But he also says to them at the end of chapter 13 that he is only, only going to be with them a little while. He says that, I'm only going to be with you for a little while. He doesn't identify, nor does he define, what a little while means. And so the disciples began to factor in their hearts and their minds, what does he mean by, I'm only going to be with you a little while? What does that mean? And we know that what has happened so far is that there have been a lot of things that have caused the disciples to believe that Jesus is about to set up his earthly kingdom. They, many of them believe that he is about to set up a messianic kingdom on this earth. They believe that. Some of them do. And then maybe they're wishing that. And so we see in this text that that there's a a perplexity that begins to develop in their hearts and minds, and they're somewhat confused. And Jesus is aware of this confusion and this insecurity, and so he addresses that in this passage. And in this passage, he's admonishing his disciples, as he does to us today, 
that we must always live with the end in sight because he's about to leave their side. He's about to die on a cross, and he's about to go to heaven, and he's going to leave them physically on their own. Now, he's going to be with them, but it's in a different form. But he knows that in that absence that they are going to have to have not only an eternal perspective, but they're going to have to recognize and realize that they've got to keep the end in sight because if they don't, they're going to let all of the, these distractions and distortions and these confusions and these, these, these detours detain them and prevent them from accomplishing what he wants to fulfill through them. And so it's here that we learn that Jesus tells his disciples how he wants them to live. So let's take a look at the text, and I want to draw some quick points here. The disciples of Christ are to live, first of all, with a different perspective. They are to live with a different perspective. What's the perspective? Notice in verse 1 he says, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. The word not is a key and a critical little two-letter word in this sentence, let not. This word not is an absolute negative in the original language. What he's saying here, Jesus to his disciples, he is saying this, under no circumstances are you to allow yourself to be so troubled that it distort nor distract the objective that I have to fulfill through your life. Do not let under any circumstances, no matter how uncertain or insecure you may think that you are or believe that you are, do not let that insecurity and uncertainty so dominate you that you don't live with the end in mind. Do not, he says, let your hearts be troubled. He knows that their hearts are troubled. The word troubled means that they are uncertain. It means they're insecure. We've already talked about that already a little bit in the introduction. The disciples right now at this point are very insecure. They're very uncertain about the future. They don't know what's going to happen. I mean, they have just heard the news that Jesus said, I'm only going to be with you a little while and, and I'm going to leave you here by yourselves. That created incredible insecurity. They, inside of their core being, inside of their hearts, they began to be fearful and afraid and uncertain about the future. I mean, they have just watched Jesus come in in this beautiful triumphant, triumphant entry into the city of Jerusalem where they have laid palm leaves down before him and he rode a donkey and they heralded him as their king. And possibly they believed that Jesus was about to set up a messianic kingdom and he was actually literally physically going to reign on a throne in Jerusalem over Israel and liberate them from Rome. There was a possibility of that and they had that in the back of their minds the whole time they were following Christ. Maybe that that was not all that they were feeling. Maybe they were thinking, you know, Jesus has said he's going to be here a little while and that means he's going to leave us. And I've left everything to follow him. And I never expected now that he was going to leave us after I've left everything to follow him. That means we're going to be alone. That means that, that all the sacrifice that we have made has really been for nothing, maybe. And now I'm, I'm not going to have a master who's going to encourage me and admonish me and help me know how to walk and how to live. I mean, there are many times in Jesus dealing with the disciples that they, they messed up. And how many times did Jesus come and straighten them out? And so they were a little bit insecure and a little bit uncertain about how they were going to live this life without their master here. They were afraid that they were going to be left alone. And maybe, just maybe, at this particular time in the life and the ministry of Jesus, the disciples could sense that Jesus was a little bit troubled. I mean, we know that Jesus was troubled when he went into the garden and he, and he prayed, Lord, 
let this cup pass from me. He knew the agony of the cross. He knew the physical, the emotional, and the mental pain that would be suffered to him personally when he would take upon himself sin that he did not commit and would be separated from the Father for just a while. And so Jesus probably was conveying a little bit of his own trouble and they could sense that there was something with their Messiah that was a little bit different. Maybe it was a combination of all of those things. But his disciples were, have just heard Jesus say, you're only going to be with me a little while. I'm going to leave you. And, and they were perplexed. They were insecure. They were uncertain about the future. And so he gives them the antidote to this insecurity. He says, you believe in God, believe also in me. That statement, you believe in God, is a, is a statement of affirmation. He said, guys, I have been with you long enough to know that you believe in God. You have placed your trust in God. You have put your faith in Jehovah God. Now, the same faith that you have put in Jehovah God, I want you to place it on me. Place it in me. Believe in me as you have believed in God. Jesus is putting himself on equal footing with God. He's saying, you, you trust God, trust me the way that you trust God. Because in trusting God, you are trusting me. And when you trust me, you are trusting God because we are one of the same. I am the son and he is the father and we are one. And when you trust him, you trust me. So because you put your trust in him, I want you to put your trust, your faith, and your hope in me. Now, what's our perspective that's different from the world? The world, when they're troubled, what do they do? How do they react? They try to grab the bull by the horns or they grab the steering wheel of their lives out of sheer panic and insecurity and uncertainty, not knowing what the future holds. And they see this, this thing, this catastrophic thing that's coming, and they try to veer away from it. They try to avoid it. But those of us who are in Christ, if we have put our faith, our trust, our confidence in him, even though we see something that may trouble us, we still make the decision to trust a sovereign God who is reigning and who is ruling on the throne. We believe, we trust, we put our confidence in Jesus. And when we do, we have a whole different perspective about our trouble. Isn't it interesting when we put our trust in Christ, our insecurities fall by the wayside. Our uncertainties disappear. Because we know in whom we have put our confidence and our trust in. It's similar to what uh, the psalmist wrote in Psalms 23. Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? What's the rest of it? Why? For thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. You see, when we have the presence of the Lord with us and we have a confidence and a, an expectation and a hope and a faith in Jesus, there is nothing that this life can bring into our lives that would cause us to push the panic button, to grab the steering wheel and to seek to avoid something that, that we just don't really want to embrace. The disciples didn't want Christ to leave. And yet Jesus said, it's the will of the Father that I leave. And even though it's going to leave you a little bit insecure and a little bit uncertain about the future, trust me, as you've trusted God, and everything's going to be okay. I don't know what's troubling you today in this life that you're living, but I know one thing. 
No matter what insecurity and uncertainty you may be possessing right now in regard to something that you may believe is catastrophic and may even lead to death, I know one thing, if you will trust in God and trust in Christ, there are no worries and there are no fears that you should have that would cause you to feel insecure and uncertain about your future. Because the same Jesus that saw the disciples, cared for them, and gave them the antidote for their fears and insecurities is the same God who sees you, who cares for you, who knows what you're going through, and he says to you today, trust me. Trust me. Put your confidence in me. And all those insecurities and uncertainties will fade away. Even about your future. I mean, should we fear death? I ask you, should we fear death as believers? Why? You know where you're going. And even though we may face death ourselves, those insecurities and uncertainties about our future, when we put our trust in God, should just simply disappear. Why? Because this world, this earth is not our home. We have a, an eternal home. We have a place reserved for us in heaven. And because of that, we know that we're going to spend a lot more time there than we are here. And we know what awaits us there. It's a better life. There's no sickness. There's no hunger. There's, no, there's, there's nothing that this world brings into our lives where, where we're going to be troubled. There's no trouble in heaven. And what a glorious place and a wonderful time we're going to have when we finally arrive at our heavenly home. So our perspective is this is not our home. So it doesn't matter what the world brings as I seek to live out my life for the Lord because I know that this is not my permanent dwelling place and I know that I have a place reserved for me because I know Jesus and I've trusted him and he's gone to prepare a place for me, which he says here, not only do we have a different perspective, but we have a definite plan. There's a purpose in which God has here for the death of Christ. And he reveals that purpose in verse 2. He said, in my father's house are many mansions. For when I saw, I would have told you. And then I go to prepare a place for you. Interesting, he says, in my father's house. The word house is a word that is a metaphor. It simply means a dwelling place. It simply means an abiding place. It's not descriptive of a castle or anything of, of, that, of that nature, not something that we would imagine. I mean, I think there are a lot of misconceptions regarding what heaven looks like and, and what we may perceive in our hearts and our minds, what it is. I know there's a little boy who died and came back and he wrote a book and now there's going to be a movie in a couple of weeks and he's going to tell us all that, that he saw in heaven. Well, I know what the Bible says, and I would rather stake my faith on the Bible and what the Bible says in regard to what heaven looks like, but God doesn't really live in a, in a literal house, but heaven is his dwelling place. Heaven is his home, and in that home, in that house, and, and I don't know about you, but a house is a great place to come home to after you've been on a long trip. You ever been gone from a long trip, and you come home, and you finally get to lay down in your bed, and Put your head on your pillow and you're in your clean sheets, not some hotel sheets that may or may not be clean. And uh, <laughs> I, always, I always freak out, you know, when I'm in a hotel sometimes. I just want to make sure they change the sheets, you know. That old, that old, that we'll leave the light on you. I just want to make sure. We'll leave, not only will we leave the light on you for you, we'll change the sheets before you get here. But anyway, there's just something about coming home, isn't it? And there's something about home. 
I mean, our home and our house is the place where people love us, irrespective of how grumpy we may, we may be from time to time. Can I get an amen to that? Uh, it's a place where you can go to the refrigerator, open the refrigerator and get anything you want, and nobody's going to tell you, what are you doing in there? You know? It's a place where we're accepted and we're loved, and we, we love and we accept others. It's a, just a wonderful place to be, and it's not by accident that it's kind of cool that we see that our Heavenly Father lives in a home, He lives in a house, and that, that that house is going to be not only His house, but it's going to be our dwelling place as well, a place where we're going to be loved and accepted and received and cared for, and it's going to play, be a place where we're going to, when you're going to get there, you're going to go, ah, I'm finally here. Praise God. But it says that Father's house, notice, are many rooms. And there are many who've tried to talk about mansions and that God's building me a mansion, but that doesn't talk about mansion here. It talks about rooms. That's the best translation. And more than likely, what you're going to get when you get to heaven is, is probably a flat or an apartment. I know that's a disappointment to you, but it's not going to be a mansion. Okay, That's not what the word says here. As a matter of fact, in the day of Jesus, when, when mom and dad had a house and, and, a, and a new family member came to be a part of the, the family, they built on a, an additional room that was attached to the house. And there are many who believe that what he's defining here, Jesus is saying that, that when we arrive to heaven, that God is going to have already prepared for us an attachment, a room that's attached to the big house where the father lives, a room. That's really all you need. You don't need more than that. And he says there are going to be many of these. Why many? Because the word many means that Jesus is saying to his disciples and us that there's going to be plenty of room for everybody. Everybody's going to be welcomed. For God has a sovereign divine purpose in which he is redeeming a lost humanity. And there are many, many, many more that he wants to redeem and to rescue and to bring into the family, into the kingdom, to be a part of of the the residence in heaven and he's continually adding on to these rooms so that there'll be plenty of room for all of us it's going to be great to know that there's not only going to be a place for you at the table but there's going to be a place for you in the father's house there's going to be plenty of room for you you're not going to get there and say i'm sorry we don't have room for you today you need to you need to just you know go back to earth and and live there for a little while that's that's fiction I saw a book the other day about a guy who went to heaven and they said, no, 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 you, it's not time, go back. That, that's none of that. You know, we don't have room for you. It's going to be room for you when you get there. And I don't think there'll be many rooms, but he says, if it were not so, I would have told you. What Jesus is saying to his disciples is he's saying, why are you insecure? Why are you feeling uncertainty? Why are you feeling so panicked? Because if it were anything different than what I am telling you, I would have told you the truth. And what he's saying to them, in this moment of insecurity and uncertainty, trust what I have taught you. And I got to thinking, you know, sometimes when we get to feeling a little bit insecure and uncertain about life and about the future, We have a hard time trusting the word of God, don't we? We do. Well, God, your word says this, but I'm not feeling it. And so Jesus is saying to his disciples, I know you're not feeling it. I know know there's a little bit of insecurity here, but I want you to trust what I've taught you. So as we're looking with the end in mind and, 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 and life is going to bring us a little bit of trouble, in the midst of those troubles, you need to go to the word of God and trust the teachings of God's word because they are truth. 
and they will anchor your faith and they will tear down those insecurities and, and, and cause those uncertainties to just dissipate. And so he says to them, if it were not so, I have told you. But the beautiful thing is here, he says, that I go to prepare a place for you. And there have been many who have misinterpreted this to believe that Jesus is going to go to heaven and he's going to be some, some carpenter up in heaven where he's going to build a mansion for you. Because after all, Jesus was a carpenter, so when he goes to heaven, he's going to be in the building business and he's going to build a, a whole neighborhood of houses so that when I get there, I'm going to have my own home or my own mansion. But that, that's not what he's saying here, and that's far from what I think the Bible would indicate what he is doing. He's saying to his disciples simply this, I am going to prepare a place for you via the cross. It's through the cross because yet Jesus has not died in this text. And he's saying to his disciples, guys, I haven't died yet. And because I have not died on a cross and risen from the dead and ascended to the Father, then you cannot get there. I must first die to then be raised and then ascend to the heaven because I am going to prepare a place. That's what he's saying. I've got to finish what I have started. Jesus is always throughout his earthly ministry in every message that he preaches, every ministry that he performs, every moment of his life, he is always focused on his death, his burial, his resurrection, and his ascension. He always has the end in focus. Focus. He always has that sight in his, in his binoculars the whole time. That's what made his life so powerful is that he always lived with the end in sight. And that's what he's saying here, guys. I'm living my life with the end in sight, and I am not finished. I have to go and prepare a place for you through my death, my resurrection, and my ascension. And as I do that, I am preparing a way by which you can come and join me in heaven. There's a plan, a plan to fulfill the purpose of God. He's saying, guys, there's a plan. Not only is there a plan, but there's a promise. Notice in the text, he talks about a defining promise. He said, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And I go. I go to prepare a place for you through the cross, through my resurrection, and through my ascension. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I'm going to, to do all of that and, 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 and ascend up into the heavens, you're going to think I'm going to leave you here. But hey, I'm not going to leave you here alone. I am going to come back and take you to be with me. Now, there's a lot of conflict and a lot of controversy over this very, very small text, actually. And the reason for that is because there's a lot of... A lot of <laughs> a lot of disagreement on, on, on uh, what the end times may look like and, and what this means. Uh, but I think it means several things in this text. And, and I think the focus in this text simply means that Jesus wants his disciples to recognize and realize that they're not going to be left by themselves the whole time, but soon they will join Jesus and Jesus will be with them. And what does actually does that mean? Well, Jesus fulfilled part of that after he rose from the dead. Because he came back to be with his disciples, didn't he? He did. After he rose from the dead, he came back and he walked with them and he talked with them. And, and, and they gathered together up on the Mount of Olivet and they watched him, what? Ascend up into the clouds. Again, we see in the book of Acts where Christ came to be with his disciples through what we call the paraclete or through the Holy Spirit. 
because the Holy Spirit in us is equal to the presence of Christ, because the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are one, and because we possess through faith in Jesus the indwelling person of the Holy Spirit, Christ dwells within our hearts. So in essence, he said to his disciples, I have fulfilling what I told you. I am with you. Not only was I with you in the resurrection, but I'm with you through the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit. It's also true, I think, that most of these disciples, I don't know of any, well, let's say all of them, they all died, didn't they? And upon their death, as their souls entered into heaven, guess who welcomed them at the pearly gates? Not St. Peter, Jesus. And so, in essence, he fulfilled that when they died, as they entered into the pearly gates, he welcomed them, and now they are with Christ. So he also fulfilled it there. But I also think this text talks about the rapture. It talks about the return of Christ, not the second coming, but the rapture. The second coming is entirely different than the rapture because in the rapture, Christ doesn't come all the way down to the earth. He only comes in the sky. Well, where do you get that? Well, turn to your Bibles and look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13. 1 Thessalonians 4, 13. I want to hear some pages turning, all right? You've gotten lazy with your Bible in here, so. Larry, don't, just don't do that. That doesn't count. He's just flipping his Bible so he can hear pages go. Not sure how you read that size of print in this dark facility. But anyway, 1 Thessalonians 4.13. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep and that may not grieve as others who do not have hope. Paul is writing to a church, and this church is upset. Uh, The apostle Paul has discipled these believers, and he has probably... Uh, conveyed to them this urgency of the return of Christ. And the Apostle Paul genuinely believed that Christ was going to return in his lifetime. He lived his life as if Jesus was going to return at any moment. I mean, he had that kind of passion. And when he discipled people, they, they caught that passion. And this church that he's writing to believed that no one was going to die until Christ returned. The only problem with that, people were dying and Christ was not returning. And so they were a little bit worried about these people who are dying in Jesus because they put their faith in Christ, but Christ hadn't returned. Are they going to miss out on the, on, on the return of Jesus? They, they're dying. So what's going to happen to them? And so Paul clears it up. Verse 14, for since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left unto the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from the heaven with a cry of command, with a voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. And then we who are alive, will be, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds, and we will meet the Lord in the air, so that we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. One of these days, the trumpet of God is going to blow, and Christ is going to return as he promised he would, and he's going to be suspended up in the sky, and the dead in Christ will rise, and those of us that are alive on that day will be caught up together with them in the clouds. Can you imagine? Dead bodies giving up their graves, and all of a sudden now you're going up with all these dead people that are now alive, and you're going to be caught up together, and you're all going to meet Christ in the air. And then you're going to go to be with Christ in heaven. 
And on his second coming, then we, with Christ, will return. And it is then that Jesus will set up his millennial reign for a thousand years in Jerusalem. But not until then. And so he's talking to them and he's saying to his disciples, hey guys, one of these days I'm going to return and I will take you to be with me. Notice he says, for where I am, you also may be, or you may be also. It's an incredible promise, a promise of not only eternal life, but a beautiful promise of a life in heaven for all eternity. For this life is not our home. And we have, even today, the omnipresence of Jesus with us. And you would think that's enough. And yet one of these days, Christ will return as he promised he would to his disciples. Now, I don't know when he's going to come back. It could be today. It could be tomorrow. It could be for you in this service. But I know one thing. If you're dead or alive, it doesn't matter. Because you're going to be caught up together with him in the clouds, and you will be forever with the Lord. That's a promise. A promise that says to us, this world is not our home. This is not our permanent dwelling place. This is not where we're going to spend eternity. Life does not end at the grave for the disciple of Jesus. In my opinion, it just continues, but in a much better place. For all of us were created for eternity. But those of us in Christ, our eternity is assured to us in a place that's been promised through faith in Jesus, a place called heaven. But notice the peace that comes to the disciple of Jesus. There's not only a defining promise, but there's a decisive peace. For those who trust Jesus, there is peace. Notice he says in verse 4, he's trying to, I think, alleviate their fears. He's trying to instill peace in these unsettled hearts. He said, and you know the way to where I'm going. You understand, you know. And later we see in John chapter 14, if you know anything about the text and the context of what he's saying, Jesus says to his disciples later on, I think it's in verse uh, 27, he says, my peace I leave with you, my peace I give unto you, not as the world gives unto you, but a different peace I give unto you. Let not your hearts be troubled. Don't let your hearts be troubled. Be at peace, be at rest. Because you know where you're going. I don't know about you, but there's something that gives us peace when we know what the, what, the, what the bottom line looks like. When we know what the finish line looks like. I mean, we're living this life on this earth, and, and there are going to be plenty of troubles that are going to come and go. But in spite of all the troubles and the insecurities and the uncertainties, we know that when we reach the end of our lives, we know that there's a promise, and that promise is that we're going to be with him for eternity in heaven, in, in paradise, in glory. That should instill within us this decision to choose peace over uncertainty and insecurity because we know, we know where we're going, man. We know what the end looks like. No matter what this world offers in regard to trouble, we should live at peace, the peace of the Lord Jesus, because we know where we're headed. We know this world is not our home, for there is a provision, and he talks about the provision. I like Thomas. Thomas asked this beautiful question, the question I think all of us, if we were there, we might have liked to have asked, but there was only one disciple who asked it. He was incredibly honest. 
Thomas is almost like he's asking this incredible question here in this, in this next point where he's sort of suggesting to Jesus, I have faith, but help my unbelief. Lord, I, I want to believe, but, but help my unbelief. Notice in the divine provision that's described in this text, Jesus says, notice to Thomas, Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? Go to point five, if you would. There you go. Jesus said to him, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. I am the way in order that you might be saved. I am the truth in order that you might be sure of your salvation. I am the life in order that you might then be satisfied with not only eternal life, but abundant life. For Christ came, Jesus said in John 10, 10, I came that you might have life, but have it more abundantly. You see, the life that we have in Christ begins at our conversion. It's not just a promise of heaven, but it's a promise of an abundant life in this life, a satisfied life. For without Jesus, there is no life satisfaction. Without Jesus, there's no assurance that when we die, we're going to heaven. Without Jesus, there's no salvation. He's the provider. He's the way, the truth, and the life. Notice what he says, no one comes to the Father. How? Except through me. That word except is a huge word. It's an adverb. It's a negative adverb. And it's the principle that negates the phrase, except through me. Jesus himself qualified himself as the only way and the only means by which we can be saved. He is the only way and the only means by which we can be sure of our salvation. How can we be sure that we're saved? Jesus said, hey, didn't he say it to them earlier? Trust what I've taught you. Trust my words. Trust my life. And trust my work on the cross. And Jesus is saying to us today to put our trust in him. Here's the last and final question as we close. Are you living your life with the end in sight? How did Jesus live his life? With the end in sight. From the very moment he left heaven and he was divinely implanted in the womb of Mary by the power of the Holy Spirit to the time of the conception, to the time in which he lived his life till he became the Jesus who assumed then the message and the ministry and the mission and, and did all of those miracles until the very bitter end of his life when he sus- died suspended on a cross, he always had the cross and his resurrection and his ascension always in front of him The whole time. I think that's one of the main secrets of the power of the life of Jesus. Sure, he was the son of God, and sure, he was divine, and sure, uh, there are times in which he he sort of reads minds and and reads hearts, and there are times when he walks on the water, and, and, you know, and we think, if we could only have that kind of power, then we could live that kind of life. You know, Jesus... Jesus did a lot of things that, that, that you and I probably will never do in a lifetime. But there's one thing that we can do that he did. And I think the secret in his life is not the miracles. It's not, you know, the supernatural power, although those things are great. If we are to be his disciples, we must emulate, we must follow his example. Which means we must always live with the end in sight. Because that, that gives perspective to everything. I mean, it gives, it gives me the right kind of perspective with my talent. I don't waste my talent on myself. I don't waste my talents 
for my personal gain. I know that at some point I'm going to have an accountability before God, and I'm going to have to give an accountability toward that talent. It, it means the time that I have in my life, I know that I've only been allotted maybe 80, 90. Some of us may live to be 100 years, but that's an allotment. That's a stewardship that God has given us that I need to make really good use of the time that I have in this life because if I don't, live with the end in mind, I'm going to waste the moments and the time that I have in life, and I'm going to look back in the rearview mirror and live with the regret. But if I'm constantly looking at the long haul, at the bottom line, and I know that, that, that when this life is over, I'm going to live eternally with Jesus in heaven, and, and I live with that perspective, and I live with that focus always before me, that, that makes a huge difference in how I, I live my life. We've all been young, and I think we, when we're young, we think we're invincible, and we don't really think about death. But as we get older, can I get a witness to this? As you get older, things start to change, and you begin to realize that you're not infinite, and that your life does have a finish line. And there will be, unless Christ returns, a funeral for you, won't there? And then what? Heaven. Dad gummit, I'm heaven bound. Praise God. And as I'm heaven bound, I live as if this world is not my home. This is not my permanent dwelling place and my time and my tithe and my talent and all of those resources that God has entrusted to me, I lay it on the altar and I give it to him because I know that in the end, I'm going to spend eternity with him in heaven. I am heaven bound. And because of that, I live this life as if it is not my permanent dwelling place. So I don't accumulate anything here for my own enjoyment and for my own pleasure. I accumulate it in order to build and to be useful for the resources for God. God's glory and the upbuilding of his kingdom. That's why he gives us what we have. I'm not saying that Jesus didn't enjoy some of the things in this life. I think he enjoyed the relationships he had with his disciples. I think he enjoyed seeing people put their faith and their trust in him. You know the things that Jesus enjoyed? You know the one thing that Jesus enjoyed I find in scripture? It wasn't a home. It wasn't a uh, a chariot. It wasn't uh, a lot of clothes. It, it wasn't position or rank or something. Jesus enjoyed people. People. Why did he invest in people? Because the only thing in your life that is eternal, the only thing in your life that is eternal are your relationships. Did you know that? Our relationships. Because one of these days as you go to heaven after you die or Christ returns, we're going to be in heaven, and the only thing that's going to matter up there is those relationships. That's the only thing you take with you is your relationship. So let's enjoy these relationships. And let's enjoy seeing people come into relationship with the Father and into relationship to the family and being a part of the kingdom and joining us in heaven. But in the meantime, let's always stay focused, always stay focused on this fact, we're heaven bound. And this place is not our home. In one of these days, unless Christ doesn't come back soon, 
you and me, we may reach the finish line. And when we do, we know where we're going because Jesus provided a way by which we can be sure because we can be saved through faith in him. But where are you headed today? Are you living life with the end in sight? Are you living life for the bottom line? Or are you living for the here and now? If you live for the here and now, you're wasting your life. If you live for eternity, you'll invest your life and you'll live it for his glory. Let's pray. song inside my heart.